I am a board game designer. That is not my full-time job because that is an impossible thing to do unless you're very lucky and very good. But outside of my full-time job, I do lots of board game design stuff. I've got one published game, got a couple others like in the pipelines, and I usually work on either puzzly Tetris style games that are very individual, figure out your own puzzles or stuff. Or I like doing highly interactive bidding games. So two opposite ends of the spectrum. I don't know how that's what I ended up with, but that's what I ended up with. It's time for an adventure in the worlds of user experience and game design. On season three of the Design Thinking Games podcast, join old school UXers and aspiring game designers Michael Schofield, Tim Broadwater, and an array of quirky characters from pixelated heroes to mischievous NPCs in search of the ultimate player experience. Design thinking is a process that is applied to different types of games in this podcast. If you're wondering whether your favorite games have already come up, you can listen through the backlog at designthinkinggames.com. Now, Rapid Protobot, fire the design thinking laser. If you rewound the time, like record scratch it back, where did this start? My grandmother specifically played Scrabble a lot. That was like the one board game outside of shoots and ladders and all that sort of stuff that I like really like getting to play. Obviously, it was me as like a tiny kid versus a bunch of like old people. They crushed me. After that, it was video games. I think like Halo 2 was like one of the first video games that I properly played. It wasn't just like at a friend's house and played it for five minutes sort of thing. And then Halo 3 came out. I think what kind of kicked off the game design stuff was Halo 3 had that forge mode. I don't know if you remember that. Halo 3 had the campaign thing, go shoot the aliens sort of stuff, but then it had the multiplayer where you can go shoot other people. And then it had forge mode where you could make little tweaks to the maps that you were doing the multiplayer games on. So you can add some boxes where there didn't used to be boxes and sort of stuff. I don't think they thought too far ahead because it was literally just plop a box down and it would just physics object itself and just fall over and be there. And then people figured out all of the bugs that let you merge those boxes into the ground and merge them into each other. So all of a sudden people could just make all sorts of crazy levels where all of these boxes are fit together in like big arenas. And so people went from just... I'm going to add a rocket launcher to the map to full on map design in the most complicated way possible. You had to (laughs) emerge two boxes. You had to put a bunch of them next to each other, set them to spawn 30 seconds into the game or whatever, reload the game, plop some boxes down in between. (laughs) And then the other ones would spawn and be in the same spot. Anyway, so that was my, I think, first dip into game design, really. There's always been like modding communities, right? But Forge was like, produced by Bungie for uh-huh. players and it had a great deal of support and I think the subsequent Halos had iterations on Forge they made it much, it became much like better a thing yeah <laughs> yeah so Forge probably spawned a ton of game designers I'm sure yeah I definitely played spent more time building levels than like playing them <laughs> which is the same thing nowadays I definitely spend more time designing board <laughs> games than I do playing them which came first working with video games or working with paper prototyping card or tabletop games or both or definitely video games I didn't really find out about the world of board games until college <laughs> that's a lie in middle school or high school one of my friends and his dad pulled me aside one weekend and asked my parents if they could play D&D with me. And so I remember setting up my D&D character in a Denny's. I didn't know what was going on. I just got dragged into it. So that was when I did a little bit of thinking about making campaigns and stuff. How much Uh, TTRPGs, like tabletop, do you play and which ones? So I played 4th edition, I think, for ages, all like through a big chunk of high school. And then I dropped off because that friend group uh, people went to college or went other places, etc. And then I didn't get back into RPGs for a while until later in college when 
Blades in the Dark was the big one that I played. Well, actually, that was past college. <laughs> yeah, Blades in the Dark is my favorite, I think, so far. And Ten Candles. Ten Candles is really good. So the idea of Ten Candles, and Connor, maybe you can correct me where I'm wrong, is that you're in yeah. a dim room, you have tea lights, like Ten Candles, literally. Ten Candles. And there is a very rules-light RPG mechanic system where you all as a group are collaboratively telling the story. The key is that none of you will survive. Like, it is about telling a great story about the end like the lights go off they're gone or whatever and basically at certain narratively important moments you blow one of the tea light candles out and the game's over when they're all blown out and it gets really atmospheric and whenever you want to use a trait to fix a roll or do a big thing you've written all your traits on note cards you literally burn them oh <laughs> you light it on fire put it in the middle of the table that trait is gone <laughs> you can't use it anymore oh yeah. cool we should try to get like an advertiser sponsorship I have <laughs> I'll share it with you I have the pdf but in terms of like game design there's probably a lot you can learn there just around the usability of the rules because it's easy to pick up it's easy to teach but also if you can get people together and you can do this and you're cool with setting it up like semi ouija the atmosphere that emerges when you really do it right is so special very cool how do you get to publishing your first game i'm not like formally trained in game design or anything and i don't think it's super necessary or it might be helpful but i don't think i've met anyone who's got a game design degree that is like leagues better or whatever they might have more academic insights which is always useful and interesting but i think you can self-teach yourself no so i was playing a lot of board games in college there was like a weekly board game night at the local game store sort of thing and i i always like building things like whenever i see something i always want to take a crack at doing it myself so after playing enough board games, I was like, I should probably give this a go. Um, and I tackled it at first by just writing the rule documents <laughs> of the game ideas that I had. That's a terrible idea. <laughs> or at least for me. They went nowhere. I had these big documents of all the rules. And then it's just like, what do you do with this? <laughs> so that kind of failed. I managed to make one prototype and it didn't work. And I didn't know what to do with it. And so I kind of gave up. But I had been just reading lots of blogs and game design posts. So I was just absorbing as much as I could. It hadn't really kicked in yet. <laughs> but it was in the back of my head. And then I dropped it for a little bit because it felt like it wasn't going anywhere and life happened. Like I graduated college and needed to find a job. <laughs> I kept having ideas and writing them down. Being like, I want to do a game. And it just, again, did not go anywhere. And then my partner, she was taking a class where she needed to write an essay. <laughs> And I was hanging out at her place and didn't have anything with me except my phone while she was just writing her essay. And I had a game designer do it. And so I spent the entire couple hours for sitting there jotting down a whole new game idea. And then I was like, okay, that can't have been a waste of time. I can't have just done the same thing again and write up a whole rules document and do nothing. So I was very lucky to have some housemates at the time who were also very into board games and were down to just help me playtest this very broken version. So I think I finally realized like, oh, I should just do the worst version of this game possible. Doesn't matter. Don't keep thinking about it. Just slap it on the table. It'll break. It's fine. <laughs> and so that's what I did. It was like very scrappy. I grabbed some cubes and some paper and that was it. And then from there, having that group that was like, uh, they always say, oh, don't play this with your friends, blah, blah, blah. But I don't know. As long as your friends are down to like critique, <laughs> you're fine. They'll tell you to your face, exactly. Yeah, and then it just finally went through iterations. And I think as soon as I started doing those like early iterations, that's when it all clicked. And I was like, oh, I can make changes and I shouldn't start with the full thing. And I should just keep changing it over and over and over and over and over. <laughs> and at that time, I still wasn't like, oh, I should publish this. There was a point where my partner was like, do you want to do Do you want to publish this? Is this why you're doing this? And I was like, huh. Maybe. <laughs> I hadn't actually thought about that part. Like, I knew it was a thing you could do, but I hadn't thought of it as like a thing I could do. So that was when I was like, oh, I should enter this into this Cardboard Edison competition. Cardboard Edison is a contest or awards for finding the best unpublished game. It's very good as like a 
like a deadline <laughs> for yourself and getting something done. And also the things you have to submit to it are the same things that you have to s- essentially submit if you're going to submit to a publisher or even the same things you've got to think about if you're going to try and kickstart it. You need a rule book, you need a video, you need a game. <laughs> so I entered that as I should just do this because I need a deadline. And then I somehow ended up winning, which is a bit strange. I thought there was going to be like 30 people entering. <laughs> And there was like a couple hundred. Oh, wow. So that was a good experience. And that, and from there, that kind of kicked everything off a bit. And basically, if you want to publish a game, a board game, you either have to do it yourself, either fund the money yourself or kickstart the money, or you can sign it with the publisher, which if you want to sign it with the publisher, you have to have the whole game done, essentially, ready to go. You don't need art. You don't need any of that stuff. Clip art's totally fine. Just get the gist across. And then you pitch it around and see who's interested, um, which is a whole process. There's lots of quirks with the game design pitching industry. It's a lot of, it's a ton of networking. You have to go meet people. You got to go to conventions. So you got to have time and money for conventions. Anyway, don't have to get too much of that. I got really lucky with Pandasaurus because some, uh, they actually took pitches online at the time. This was pre-pandemic. So most people were taking pitches in person. And I was like, I can't, I don't really have the time or energy to go to a convention to maybe pitch a game. I'm not spending a thousand dollars on that because <laughs> all the conventions are on the opposite coast from me. But Pandasaurus was taking pitches online. Once they're like, oh, this looks cool. Send us a physical copy. That's the cost in it. $20 to ship a game. It's fine. That's how that happened. They just posted on Facebook that they were looking for games and then I submitted to their form. And then a lot of months later, they were like, we want to sign it. And so they signed it. And then cool. they kind of took over from there. That's very cool. It seems like in very many ways it's a home run. But I guess a lot of that was dependent on doing it and making it happen. And it sounds like there was maybe yeah. a or blocker there. But once you did, it just started rolling. And a lot of luck <laughs> that like things fell into place. Like luck that the right judges who liked that type of game looked at it in the Cardboard Edison Award. Luck that I had the time at the time to spend a ton of time fixing up the rule book so that when it got to the award, it was good to go and just all sorts of other stuff. But yeah. Are there a lot of these kind of awards? I guess is the first question. The other question is compared to you said pre-pandemic to now, are there a lot of people who are just taking submissions online to publish your games or is it come back to like you still have to do it in person? So first question, yes, there are a bunch of different awards. I think Cardboard Edison is like the, one of the bigger ones. BGG has lots of little fun forum ones once i won that one i was like i probably don't need this anymore because i kind of see carbon and is like an opportunity for people to get out there i don't need that because i've done that now so i don't want to take up that space it's like a certification right so it's hey like i have some bona fides and now <laughs> i don't have to go chase them anymore right it's on my linkedin it's on my it's on my website you still gotta chase you know. people there's too many board game designers there aren't really enough publishers for the number of game designers and and then self-publishing is its own nightmare <laughs> so, uh, so it's but it is a it is like a step it's like you get your foot in the door that's or the door has been opened and you can put your foot in if you can get the chance. So like step one, play test a lot. Step two, yeah. win the Cardboard Edison Award. <laughs> yeah. Really the step two, This is so this is the big thing that I think has leveled me up in quotes the most is in the pandemic when everything hit and this was, I was about to go to Origins and I was about to do all the networking and that all got thrown out the window. But then a bunch of Discord communities popped up because everyone had to. And I just joined a bunch of those and met a ton of people. And that is where I really got the ball rolling because I, I found some groups less good, others much better. You try out a bunch of different groups and then find the one that's good and you just get into a rhythm of playtesting, networking with people, chatting with people, seeing lots of different types of games, seeing how they fix their problems. Just that like community aspect, that was huge. Yeah. The Thief is a Dungeons & Dragons actual play with just one player, CC Way. Getting more information I think is pretty safe, and I can't let Osmond rot. 
and a full cast of NPCs supported with soundscapes. This isn't some pickpocket or killer or slumlord. These are important people. These are the kinds of people who, if they get your name, you cannot evade. The original world is grim, and it is unlikely the thief will survive. Created by Michael Schofield. Listen for The Thief, an audio drama. Anywhere you find podcasts and on the web at thiefpodcast.com. helped me out with one of the things that was an aha moment like working with you during the mentorship was really a process you just need a process Mm -hmm. and it's really like you can create this kanban board of columns of statuses and it can work and flex and be whatever is good for you but then make sure that you can always add to it if you're out walking and you're like oh crap i got an idea you can kind of put it down and yeah so that was very useful to me. I was like, oh, this is a, a common sense product development process yeah. that I can imagine that folks trying to get into game design without that back background, like it might actually be like a mind blowing thing of just how simple and lo-fi the process can be. Yeah, and I think that was the big aha moment for me. So I read this book that another game designer, Emma Larkins, was talking about reading called From Chaos to Creativity. Here's a general idea. You should probably have buckets. You can call those buckets whatever you want. I got a bunch of sleep issues, and so I'm tired all the time, so I don't necessarily always have the energy to do playtesting, which involves talking to people and being very social. So I bucketed them based on types of energy required, (laughs) which is how mine came out, which is basically like my noodle on things is one bucket because I can just do that lying on the couch. Then there's the like, I got... I'm going to put something on the table and think about this in a more focused, concrete way, but I'm still doing it by myself. Then there's the, I want to do game design stuff, but I don't want to think about it. That's my prototype step. I know I need to make cards with numbers on them and symbols. I don't have to think. I just have to do the thing and I get to do some crafts. So that's that kind of energy bucket, right? (laughs) Put on a podcast and just make some cards. And then there's the social part of let me play test this. And then there's the like back burner part where it's let me just put this in the back of my head for a while and not think about it. That's my like telling myself, do not think about this for a while because it's too annoying right now. And then it goes back to the front or it bounces it back and forth. So that's how I've bucketed it. And I, and that's the one I told you because I think the buckets work outside of my <laughs> thing. But it is easy because then you can be like, these are my playtestable games. I've got five of them. Cool. Playtest night's coming up. Put those five games in my bag. <laughs> The way you've organized that like really lends itself to having multiple projects at a time. Mm-hmm. So you can just pick it up and then do you have are you deeply are you generally like deeply concerned about a specific project reaching a finish line before another one? So I think this was my other aha moment. For the longest time when I was working on Umber Via, people were like, You gotta work on other games. It's, if you really wanna develop as a game designer, you should probably work on other games. This isn't to say you must work in other games. If you have your one game that you care about, go for it. Do it. Yeah. But if you do want to like make more games, working on one of them at a time is like a recipe for failure, in my opinion. Mostly because it'll take so long for the learnings of one game to catch up to the next. And also you'll burn yourself out. Do you keep a healthy number in the churn? I'm always kind of working on three or four. One, two, three, four. I got ten right now. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm gonna go pitch some games. I'll just get out the old game backpack and oh, these I have ten to choose from. I'll just (laughs) I think this is it's worked nicely for me because I they're all at different stages, right? Some of them are like very early ideas and learnings from one game can bounce into the next. And if I don't want to think about one game, I can keep doing game just because I love game design, but I don't necessarily love working on that one game on that one small problem that it's stuck on. 
I still want to do game design. Yeah. So that's helped me a lot. In my I love it. No, it's super helpful and it clicks. Once you did it, it's holy shit. I've been doing this in software for years. Why didn't I think about this in any process? I think it's one of those things now. I actually know like someone who I work with who her and her husband have a retro at the end of the year. Uh-huh. And what they do in this retro is specifically like... How did we take vacations together? Did we do enough things together alone? Did we do enough new things? Were there, what were the troubles of the year? And like they really Kanban <laughs> to some degree, not their sure, relationship yeah. and just do that kind of thing. And it's it's very interesting. What's going on now with you? Are you just always, if it's a side hustle, you're just always working on games and then just always pitching them? And Yeah. Pitching is one of those categories in the board that is the most energy. I've got a game that is with a publisher that should be getting announced sometime this year. Part of me is I'm tired and don't have the energy, so maybe I'll just wait for that one to come out. hope it does well, and maybe that'll be my little boost. But in the meantime, yeah, I've got five games that I think are, like, done. And so I'm casually pitching those around. You asked earlier about are people still doing online pitches and stuff. Mostly, I think a lot of it seems to have gone back to the best way to talk to people is in person, which is because I don't like I've got the money to do it but do I want to drop a thousand plus dollars on flying to the east coast to maybe get them to maybe look at it it's nice actually having a library of this many games I have a website that I post them all on so whenever I do send a game to someone I can be like here's my game and then they'll be like I'm not interested in that one and then they click on the homepage and look at all the projects and they're like oh but this one looks cool like that's actually the other great thing about not rushing it is i can just build up a library of games and then i can shop them all around at the same time because like what publishers want changes constantly right you might go to a year game publisher and they're like actually we're getting into party games now (laughs) and those party games will come out in two years time because that's our release schedule so yeah having just a bunch on hand is helpful so that's kind of assuming you're talking about connorwake.com your site um on the homepage, you have a bunch of images, a square grid of all the games. Some yeah. have a parenthetical published after them. Some have a parenthetical signed. And then the other ones are not. So my assumption there is that when you're pitching games, you can just refer to the other ones. Published is, of course, published. Was signed. Signed is publisher has signed the game and is intending to publish it. I'm currently just working on it in the background. So I, I put that there just so that no one asks me about it. <laughs> I don't have nice cover art to put out there yet yeah but i'm not so pitching. the final skinning i guess this is something i'm very curious about with publishing so you mentioned something earlier which is oh you don't you can have clip art you can just have the elevator pitch and all the assets ready but how much does it get changed between that and the publishing can they skin it however they want it's hey hedge mage we're actually going to make it cog mage or something else who change it and can they yeah. just i'm just wondering how much happens there variance artistically and company wise it will 100 depend on the publisher panasaurus took the game did their whole thing and then i found out about it mostly later they didn't fully reskin it i did some tweaks and added flowers mine was much more spooky ritual they made it spooky flower ritual hedge mage which is working on with publisher they are they're keeping the theme because it's it's a mostly an abstract game but it's also pretty tied to the theme i don't know how you would do it other than it's a maze and magic mazes make the most sense because these hedges are popping out of the ground so they're keeping it but they actually are doing a bunch of like game design mechanic tweaks because for example i had a scoring system that was called gnomes which is basically the amount of chaos in your garden the more gnomes there are the more chaotic it is you don't want lots of chaotic gnomes in your garden but it was just a point system this publisher has turned it into gnomes that are on the board (laughs) running around that made it into a real part of the game so it depends on the publisher and like what the game needs they'll usually work with you like for hedge mage they've been keeping me in the loop the whole time and i've been doing play tests so what's yep. there it's your videos and your i think sell sheets which are your sell sheets are great and of what you've presented to them and then they can go from there is that correct yeah so the stuff on the website is first look they'll if that's interesting they'll ask to either play a digital version or get a copy shipped to them and then from there they'll play it a bunch 
play it with their team, play it with their friends, other people, etc. Like the one the person I fetched Hedge to, they've got some like retailer friends. <laughs> so they play it with them to see, would this work in the retail market in your store? And then if they like that, then they will maybe sign it. Or they might be like, I don't think it's quite there yet. You might need to make some changes, etc. Um, but for Hedgemage, they were just like, no, this is, they played it a few times, played it with people and then signed it. May I ask your criteria for like, when do you feel like, okay, I can make a video for this and I can put a sell sheet up on the website now. Originally, I thought you had to do everything perfect, do a hundred unguided playtests, playtest it 500 times. I think that's true if you're self-publishing, <laughs> but for pitching to a publisher, my cutoff criteria is basically am i confident that this is the core of the game if i'm like oh i don't think the numbers are quite balanced and we might need to tweak stuff i don't care about that stuff anymore that's the publisher's job because and if it ever comes down to i could make the game more complicated or i could make the goals a little bit easier that's also the publisher's job as soon as it comes to those like audience questions i know my main audience of the main type of game but as soon as it comes to the very picky audience questions and the very picky product questions that's when i stop because i'll spend a bunch of time making all of the goals super complicated and they'll be like we don't like this goal system we love everything else and they scrap it right so it's as long as the gist is in there and more than the gist as long as like you can see the game and the framework and it's functional and it's enjoyable fun whatever as long as all that works, if people are like, oh, I think you should tweak some things, then I'm like, okay, we can pitch it now. That makes then, sense. Okay. Yeah. The core of the play, the feel, the strategy, balance, and it's just, this is the game, essentially. Now, if you want to skin it with cowboys or like plants or zombies, whatever, it's yeah. the core is this is how it's going to play. So. I, I do develop it. Like, I do make sure it's all, most of the edges are rounded off. I just don't explore too much past that because, yeah. It's just a waste of time and I'm working on too many things and I'm already not getting paid for this. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm not paid for this until it gets signed and then it comes out three years later and then it maybe does well. So yeah, but this is just for signing it with publishers. If I was going to self-publish it, I'd 100% do way more work. I'd actually hire a developer to like be a second pair of eyes and all that sort of stuff yeah how do people get connected with you how do they find out more about your games i'm on twitter as long as twitter lasts at connor j wake i'm not the best at social media stuff so like i know everyone's moving but i'm gonna wait till we figure out where to actually move to (laughs) um but mostly i'm on discord you'll find me in the break my game discord same thing. I'm Connor Wake and stuff like that. But if you want to like actually get in contact with me at, at Connor J Wake on Twitter, it's probably the easiest way to do it. Otherwise, yeah, ConnorWake.com has my games. Yeah, that's it. Okay. I'm game. Let's play. Okay. Agile methodology, waterfall or lean? I don't know what those are. UX FMK is the hottest UX book on this side of the internet. Tim Broadwater, our very own certified UX unicorn, takes the all too familiar premise of the original FMK game and wrote a book that invites you to take a deep dive into U.S., what doesn't work, and how royally things can be screwed up. Listen on Audible or pick up UXFMK anywhere books are sold, but especially Amazon.
what this is is like we have 12 questions that are mm-hmm. sort of irreverent um that are in the style of in the actor studio inside the actor's studio or like barbara walters like mm, if you were a tree okay uh, you know and then like um we can roll a die to randomly select um mm-hmm. and but we're always going to make sure that if you roll if you roll the same number, we'll just pick a different question. So it starts getting arbitrary. That's it. It's just 12 questions. We have, um, uh, and whenever you're ready, you can roll the die and tell us the number, and it'll pick from our random, a little randomizer. Four. You said four? Four. What? What is your color mode? RGB, hexadecimal, Uh. RGBA, Pantone, CMYK. (laughs) I mean, CMYK, because I print way too much stuff out. So, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) I recently had to help a friend who exclusively does web design stuff uh, convert a bunch of files over to CMYK, and that was fun. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, They also got to learn about cut lines and bleed and margins. Oh, wow. Do any of that before? (laughs) Oh, dude, I I grew up in the print world, so yeah. (laughs) Like, where's your alpha layer? <laughs> like, I don't understand. You're doing everything in Figma, and Figma's cool for web design stuff, I guess, but it can't do nice paths around things easily. Because apparently uh, they spent, like, hours trying to get, like, cut lines around things. And I was like, I, I just redid the whole thing in, like, an hour in Illustrator. <laughs> oh, my God. Paths <laughs> around at the right margins and everything. So, anyway, uh, that was not quite the question, but CMYK. Because no, it's it's perfect. <laughs> All right, give us another roll. Whenever you're whenever you're feeling like done with it, just roll the next one. That was again a four. Hold on, nine. Describe in describe in detail <laughs> your favorite dice. Like, do you do you like just love a d6? Do you have like a really cool metal one? What is your favorite dice? And why? Um, oh, do I have it with me up here? Uh, okay, I don't have it with me up here, but I got close enough. So I've got these frosty blue uh, D6. Oh, wow. Um, they're slightly translucent. They got a little matte finish on them. Uh, they look like frosted glass. Yeah, it's like they look dangerously edible. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, that, I, I really like that kind of off electric blue kind of color, um, yeah. especially in combination with like gray or black or anything like that. Um, so any dice like that is great. Um, also, I really like D6. They're so simple. I don't need any of the D20 stuff, whatever. Um, yeah, so a nice no, OG. frosty cyan <laughs> D6. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Perfect. Roll two D6s. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, 11. 11. What is your D&D alignment? Oh, God. Uh, probably chaotic neutral. Um, when I did play D&D, I was, uh, I was definitely probably put <laughs> on my uh, GM's nerves because uh, whenever I purposely went and got myself bit by a vampire because I thought it would be interesting. Um, and I wanted vampire awesome, yeah. powers. Um, and so that confused the vampire because um, I just willingly walked in and got bitten. Um, so, yeah. And then I stuck random magical objects, like these magical gems got stuck into my character's eyes one time because it seemed like it would do something cool. So, I, yeah, so pretty chaotic. Uh, my GM always had yeah. to make it semi-functional so I didn't just kill myself. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, my character turned into this horrible amalgamation of magical items vampire nonsense it's good also as a shapeshifter so yeah there you go all the things all the things things. it's like katamari but if you were a person yes i think i was covered in like beetle exoskeleton by the end of it so yeah i don't know how that works with vampire teeth but you know amazing Give us another whenever you're ready. Oh, yeah. Three. A three? Okay. What is um, what is a game that everybody should play at least once? Hmm. I've got two. 
um, the mind, because <laughs> it so perfectly encapsulates the whole just games are about interacting with people and the rules are there to just facilitate that. And yes, the, the mind does, uh, for people who don't know the mind, um, the mind, it's a deck of cards, one through a hundred. You deal out uh, like three cards to all players and then uh, you must play them in order without talking to each other. <laughs> um, that's the whole game. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And it's a co-op game. So you're all on the same team trying to you know complete that. And you get more and more cards every round as you do better. But it's just like looking at everyone and being like, should I go? Should you go? And then everyone starts like leaning backwards or starting to go. And you're like, oh, hang on. Um, and then there's this perfect moment where like someone plays like the 36 and then the 37 gets slapped down and then the 38. And you're like, how the hell did we do that? <laughs> how did we perfectly time all of that without uh, talking to each other? But it works. Um, wow. Some people think yeah. it's not a game, whatever. Um, I think it's great. Um, so I think everyone should play that. That's interesting. It's like, this is like a whole category of like games as social experiment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just, it's so simple and perfectly distilled of just like, yeah, they're about setting up interactions and experiences with other people. Um, so yeah. Um, and then what's my other one? Okay, I don't think everyone should actually play this one, but I think it's a ridiculous game. Um, Roads and Boats uh, from Splatter. It is nonsense. Uh, if you look up the cover and you care about graphic design and fonts, um, you'll love it. Um, <laughs> until you pulled it up so you can see how bad it is. Uh, it's bad in like the best way. Uh, it's from like 1990-something. Um, it does kind of everything wrong <laughs> in a game, in a way. Like, it is so slow. It is so fiddly. It's got simultaneous turns that aren't really simultaneous. It's got take that. None of the stuff belongs to you. You've got a whole mine of gold and you're packing it up on your donkey. Someone can walk over and pick it up because none of it's yours. Um, it's just, uh, it's it's a weird game. Um, but it is kind of great. And it's this ridiculous sandbox. Um, so I think it's an example of like, you can do all the stuff wrong in a game design according to traditional like what is right and wrong about games and still have it come out really great it is a really clunky game and you got to really slog through it and you got to print out a whole separate sheet but i think it's really cool um i just pulled up it's uh i just pulled up like it's cover and like it's logo <laughs> like it, like it kind of like hurts to look at it's like you have the end etc uh, expansion yeah. where they tied the oh my God, it reminds me it reminds me of like what is the game that they played on parks and recreation the cones of dunshire oh yeah <laughs> it yeah, yeah, yeah. um it's it's a it's a good one um for for people you should look up the cover but it's basically roads and boats and you know how roads and boats have an o and an a well what if we use them this both the O and the A in each word. No, that's not it. There's one O and A shared between both words, but the all the other letters it's like an R and B stacked and a D and yeah. T stacked, but yeah. the O, A, and S are shared. And then the <laughs> expansion so is and etc. And they loop the and through everything, and it's just nonsense. <laughs> oh, nice. Um, but it's also Amazing. just a stupid like it, they do lots of little commentary, poking fun at uh, capitalism stuff. So that's it. New 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 number, not new dice. Twelve. Twelve. Um, what is the most? Um, I guess you can pick either of these. What is either like? What is the most like usable, enjoyable game you've ever played? What's it, what? What game has like the best like user experience to you? Hmm. You know that's tough because I don't think a lot of board games do a good job of this. Um. <laughs> Let's see. I mean, there's lots of very usable things, individual things in games that I can think of. Yeah. Um, but I don't think I know of a game that has pulled off everything, um, at least in the like hobby sphere. Um, yeah. Scythe's whole upgrade system 
um, of you remove a cube from the top row and add it to the bottom row and the slots are the perfect size for the cube. And then when you remove the cube in the top, it reveals a thing and you add it to the bottom and it covers up a thing. Uh, just makes that whole upgrade process super easy, right? Move a cube. Wow. Like a bunch of different things change. The cost goes down and the reward goes up and it's clearly demarked that you've upgraded it. Um, and it feels good because you've revealed something. Uh, I think a lot of games uh, kind of copy that nowadays. Um, um, uh, one other little thing, actually. Framework uh, has a cool system where um, it's a drafting game. You draft tiles, everyone goes around, picks a tile, adds it to their tableau. Um, but what's cool about it is, you know how usually you got to figure out turn order and like changing who's going first? And that's annoying because you forget who just went and all that sort of stuff. Um, but if you don't do that, you don't change who goes first, right? Which means someone's always got the advantage. Framework does this by having one more thing than a number of players to draft, which means the first person goes, you go around, everyone picks one thing, and then the first person picks the thing that was left over. This means they get a disadvantage for going first because then they're stuck with something that everyone else gave them. And then it automatically shifts who's the first player <laughs> because you just keep going around and you just refill it back up to one more than the number of players. Oh, yeah. So automatically, turn order gets fixed. You fixed uh, first player advantage by giving them a disadvantage and you don't even have to worry about it. It just happens. So, oh, wow. Uh, the graphic design in that game, not so great. But that part, good. <laughs> <laughs> okay great in the event that you get to know in the event that you get in a fight <laughs> when when you're attacking are you using like strength or dexterity or another stat i would definitely be turning invisible and just tripping and leaving. <laughs> that's the kind of that's the kind of fight I would have. So a dexterity based stealth check. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Let's go with that. <laughs> nice. Nine. What is your what is your reaction when you hear the phrase UI slash UX? Um, that covers a lot of ground <laughs> and I'm never sure what people are actually referring to. Um, <laughs> for like a UI UX designer. <laughs> I work, yeah. I, I don't do front end stuff anymore. I'm a backend engineer partly cause I don't know. I can't, uh, I can't, I like all the numbers and being in the background doing stuff. I don't like the front end. anyway. Um, yeah, I just know it's I just know it's a lot <laughs> and it's complicated. Um because <laughs> I mean user interface easy and then throw in user experience, just everything to do with a user touching the thing. Oh my god. <laughs> nice. We are past the halfway point. That's seventh. This okay. will be the eighth question. Two. Two. Theater of the mind mm -hmm. or Maps and miniatures. Theater of the mind. I I used to be a maps and miniatures person. Um, yeah, this is where. So I design a lot of like polyomino, puzzly, fiddly. Yeah, you games. literally were talking about the meeple that you three D print. Yeah, yeah. So I, I do all that sort of stuff, but um, <laughs> it's like I'm a software engineer, but I don't necessarily like i like software engineering but it's not like my thing but i like doing it but i don't like software engineering as a whole like i will never work on and i feel like i'm kind of the same way um like with my games i really like the types of games i make but i also spend too much time with them so i need to do other things <laughs> you know so i really like taking a break from that and going in theater theater of the mind rpg stuff like that's that's great yeah, I don't need more fiddling around with miniatures on the table. That's interesting. That's how I am, too. I'm theater of the mind, too. I never really thought of it as just, like, that's literally all that I can handle at the moment. <laughs> like, yeah. in my free time. Like, I, just, I need to use something I don't use at work, which yeah. is my imagination. I like I like doing lots of different things. So I've got, I got it covered already. <laughs> yeah. um, that's an 11. 
11. Um, ooh, this is my favorite question. You, you fail your last death save. <laughs> what are your final words? Oops. <laughs> That's like, uh, I love it. It's appropriate. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not a very profound person or anything. I just, <laughs> I just be annoyed. That's <laughs> <laughs> like kind of, it's just a deep sigh. <laughs> yeah. Just uh, okay. Okay. Final three. Seven. What game is a guilty pleasure? Mm. That's a tough one. I think I don't. I don't think I have a guilty pleasure game because I just. I don't know. They're all kind of guilty pleasures. They're all games. That's, that it's hard frivolous. when you're just like when you or when you have like no shame and you're like I like what I like. It's hard yeah, to, like yeah. I, they're all they're all good. <laughs> Like playtesting other people's games that are like that's the thing I do the most. That when people are like, "What's the board game you played the most?" It's not published games. I'm, I swear, it's <laughs> yeah. like three quarters of my time playing board games are spent playing like weird little. Do, do you enjoy yeah. that? Like I like because like uh, I can see because you're playtesting games that are most likely broken like in some degree right like so but like uh is it just like um you're like do you like it and like i'm I'm just kind of curious like what about it yeah it's which you like more code reviews or game play testing another person's game (laughs) biggest the biggest thing is always the ego of the other person that you're like yeah. You know, playtesting their game. That's the make or break. So I think the biggest thing is just finding a good group. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, so once you found a good group, it's all good. It's all just ideas are spinning. Well, you're just it's all part of the, it's, you know, it's like an extension of that whole like Halo 3 Forge modding community. It's like you find a bunch yeah. of people and you guys are like hacking on a thing together. You're playing it and be like, oh, it'd be cool if we could like go counterclockwise or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, oh, the one I play the most, it's Into the Breach. Um, I've played that game way too Into much. Into the Breach. Yeah. <laughs> uh, very board gamey. I've tried to make the board game version of it a few times. I've failed. <laughs> eight. Eight. And eight. Oh, interesting. Uh, what is your favorite card game? Hmm. Yeah, I'm so bad at just remembering games that I've played. Um, I don't know if this is my favorite, but it's it's one I've played the most. Um, Herbaceous. Oh yeah, um, Herbaceous I've, heard, I've never great. played it. I've seen it, but yeah, yeah, it's it's one of those uh, fuzzy push your luck, but against the other players around the table. Because a lot of yeah. push your luck games are like. You can count the probability. You've got a three quarters chance of failing right now. Whereas Herbaceous is like, well, um, how much does the other person want the thing? Because that's your probability that it's going to bust right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I really like that stuff. Um, so I think Herbaceous is is really good for that. Yeah. That's good to know because I've kind of always wondered how what people thought about it. And I generally tend to go away from one to four player games because I always just want the opportunity of like bigger games. But um, but I've always been curious. Oh, like sure. the game. It's tiny as well. So they've got a pocket edition. Yeah. Travel. Nice. Easy. Yeah. All right. Final question. It's an 11. What is your... Um What's your what's your go to genre? Alternate history, fantasy, cyberpunk, goth, horror. What's your go to fa- uh, go to genre? Um, yeah, probably sci fi fantasy with like goth leaning. <laughs> I would say. Um, well, so like which is, which is perfect because um, the Locked Tomb series is that exactly. <laughs> so like uh, sci fi magic necromancers in space. Yeah, there we that, that's yes. my vibe. Um, <laughs> yeah. Get ready for the game that's hot. D12's what you've got. 12 questions gotta be quick. Can you handle it? Can you stick? <laughs>
as the listeners may know, last year, you know, for, we were doing a Patreon, and if you supported us on Patreon, you got the episodes ad-free and you know, early, which was cool. Anyone who's been like listening with us from season one and who will uh, enjoy season three know that we are iterating a lot. And one of the big things we're iterating on is like what we're spending time on. There's probably like a whole interesting episode or like side thing about like why we chose to back off Patreon, but we backed off Patreon. We would love it if people would donate to us. Please head over there and support us if you like. We're going to put some content and stuff there, but it's not going to be exclusive. Previously on Design Thinking LARPing. Oh, he brought us something. Playtest. Prototype. Playtest. Destroy. What is this? It's, it's the LARPers rules? This is it. The final battle. Design Thinking LARPing is a story about heroism. The script is written by a poorly trained AI and it is performed by your poorly trained heroes. Enjoy! Are you sure we're ready for this? We have to be. Rapid Protobot, what's the plan? Prototype, event executes. Our heroes, Tim, Michael and Rapid Protobot charge into battle. Meta gaining their way through the laughters. Swords clashing. Shields slamming. I feel ridiculous. Now you know how they feel. At least we're ridiculous together. That's the point! Uh, uh, do I... Do we... Are we LARPers? Now you understand. I think we are. Yeah, that... This isn't right. We have to stop. LARPers are gamers too. Stop! Everyone, stop! Him and this chaos. Find out in the next episode of Design Thinking Games the fate of our heroes, Tim, Michael, and, of course, Rapid Protobot. The most delightful of the three. This story continues. Thank you for listening and connecting with Design Thinking Games on TikTok, Twitch, and Twitter. You can also check out designthinkinggames.com to request topics, ask questions, or see what else is going on. Until next time, game on. Any final thoughts for our listeners, Rapid Protobot? Ooh.